Today we'll be looking at um, the book of Ecclesiastes. The title of the message today is Enjoy Your Life. Peter taught on joy a few weeks ago, but uh, I think joy is a good way to start the new year. Over the past uh, couple of weeks, most of us have enjoyed um, food with family and friends. And uh, what was that experience like? Did you enjoy it? Um, maybe last week or maybe this coming week, uh, many of us are going back to work. What will that experience be like? Will you enjoy it? We're going to see what Solomon says about enjoying life. Uh, the text is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, we're going to mostly focus on 18 to 20, but I'm going to start on uh, in, in verse 13, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word, that you would fill our hearts with joy and the peace that passes understanding by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this text that we read is one of a few uh, similar sections in Ecclesiastes where Solomon starts by saying that something is vain or evil and then follows that by telling us what's good. We're going to spend most of the time looking at uh, what he tells us is good, but I want to set, set it up in context and look at the two bad things that he's responding to. So here toward the end of chapter 5, he's been wrestling with issues related to money. The first problem he sees is the fact that those who love money are not content with it. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's important to understand how Solomon has chosen to engage the problem. 
He's not looking at the man who loves money and saying, God says you shouldn't be a lover of money, so stop it. He's not considering things primarily in personal moral categories. He's looking at the problem more like a philosopher. So he's looking out at the world and seeing, okay, something's happening. I see this man, he loves money. How does that go for him? Not good. Okay, so now what? What should, what should happen then? And that's the section that we'll be looking at in a few minutes. Now as we go, don't be alarmed if Solomon sounds a little too secular or pragmatic. After he has finished reasoning everything out in the book of Ecclesiastes, he presents his conclusions at the end. And he says this. This is the end of the book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So stick with Solomon's train of thought. He's ending up in the right place. The second thing he describes is a situation where a wealthy man makes a significant investment and it turns out badly. Again, he's looked, in the, looked out into the world and sees something's happened. This guy has worked hard. He's made a lot of money. How does that go for him? Well, it could turn out really badly. He invests his money and then it's all gone. It's not good that the man should have worked so hard for nothing. All of the value of the labor that went into accumulating the capital for the investment has been wasted. Solomon has painted for us a picture of a certain kind of life that is very common. I think one of the reasons he chooses to look carefully at this kind of life is because the financially, financially oriented life is common. And it's common because it seems like quite a good and reasonable way to live. In his description, he assumes that the person attains a good measure of wealth. But then he turns his attention to what the inner experience is of one living such a life. What is the person feeling? He finds that it's a life of dissatisfaction, futility, desire, hurt, loss, toil, vexation, sickness, and anger. So what should we be doing instead? Enjoy your life. Let's look at our main text, beginning in verse 18. Uh, the first part of that verse says, Behold I have, well, what I have seen to be good and fitting. God's people should enjoy their lives. We should enjoy our lives because doing so is good and beautiful. Solomon says that what he's about to recommend is good and fitting. So good stands in contrast to the grievous evil mentioned earlier in the chapter. Now it's important to remember that Solomon is not using good to mean obedient. Again, he's reasoning from life rather than taking a because God said so approach and citing the 10th commandment against coveting. It's the situation that was earlier identified as the grievous evil, not the conduct specifically, even if it was. He's using good in the same sense here. It is a good thing 
that labor be rewarded. This teaching is not unique to Ecclesiastes. Deuteronomy 25.4 prohibits the muzzling of an ox while it treads out the grain. The animal was not to be prevented from receiving some enjoyment of its labor, and so was to be allowed to eat some of what it was working on. The context of Deuteronomy 25 and the explanation of it in 1 Corinthians 9 both indicate that the principle applies primarily to people. It is good for people to receive some benefit from their work. Being a man who labors, I have some experience of being a muzzled ox. I walked into an empty house a couple weeks ago when it was freezing outside and found that the temperature inside the house was not much of an improvement on the temperature outside. The general contractor brought over some space heaters and I thought everything was solved. However, the owners of the property begrudged this luxury and would come by occasionally to unplug all of the heaters and casually criticize each of the contractors. This is what it means to muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. This is not good. In contrast, just last Friday, an older woman brought me a pot of chamomile tea in a beautiful china teapot, literally on a silver platter. This is good. <laughs> the word translated fitting in the ESV means beautiful. Most often, often with reference to women, although it's used occasionally in the Bible of men, trees, Mount Zion, and once of the fat cows in Pharaoh's dream. It's used to describe Sarai, Rachel, Abigail, Tamar, Abishag, Esther, Job's daughters, and the Shulamite woman. Solomon is about to lay out a description of a beautiful life. This aesthetic pleasantness stands in stark contrast to the vanity, evil, vexation, sickness, and anger of the foregoing verses. The word is used only one other time in the book uh, where it says that God makes all things beautiful in their time. I read a novel a while ago by Margaret Mitchell, and one of the characters uh, was musing on a beautiful life, a beautiful situation that they had lost. And, uh, and he says this, there was a glamour to it, a perfection, and a completeness, and a symmetry to it, like Grecian art. I like that. Solomon says that the beautiful life is the enjoyed life. So verse 18 began with a moral and aesthetic judgment about the life of joy and found that it is both good and beautiful in comparison to a life of striving and accumulation. He has not said that there are no sorrows in life or that pursuit of personal pleasure should be humanity's primary concern. He has said that enjoying life is good and beautiful for the reasons he's about to describe. So let's look at the rest of verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. It's good for the Lord's people to enjoy life because some things are inevitable. That's the, that's the point of this, this next section. It's, it's good for God's people to enjoy life because some things are inevitable. See, eating and drinking are the pleasant equivalent of death and taxes. 
Unlike wealth and possessions that are mentioned in the next verse, this is not a benefit that may only be enjoyed by a select few. One may find joy in these things or not, but no one can avoid them. There are probably also connotations here of enjoyment of friends, family, and even worship. While the joy of companionship, food, and drink can be undermined by unfortunate circumstances, they are not the privileges of wealth, which is one of the main things under discussion in the passage. They're common to most of humankind. Even the very poor can find joy in simple food shared with friends. It's important to see that Solomon is not suggesting some new kind of pursuit in life that would make a god of one's belly or an idol of one's friends. This would miss the point, since it would be a return to the vain striving that he speaks against throughout the book. It's commended for precisely the opposite reason. One must already eat and drink, and it is better to enjoy it than not to enjoy it. The New Testament affirms that food is not a worthy ambition for the people of God. In Matthew 6, Jesus, also on the topic of money, says that such pursuit is characteristic of pagans, and that the people of God ought not to concern themselves with pursuing tomorrow's food. Rather, they are to trust that food will be given to them from God as, as it is given to the birds. It's precisely because the need for food is unavoidable that God's people are not to be anxious about it. Do you see the difference? You must eat. Enjoy the food you have. It has been provided to you by God. But don't make food your life. Don't go from here this morning and use your credit card to buy the most expensive steak you can find. Receive with joy and thankfulness whatever God has apportioned to you. Listen to this from Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Is that not the beautiful life, the good life? The Lord gives joy, the joy of the table even in times of trouble. What does the shepherd do when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? He prepares a table for us even while our enemies are still present. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking not only for bread, but for all the ordinary things we need. You see, it isn't really all about the food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the word whose flesh is true food and blood true drink. Solomon says, eat, drink, and find enjoyment. Yes, go to Jesus to satisfy not the hunger of your body, but the longing of your soul. 
Isn't this a more painful need than just being hungry? Wouldn't you rather have joy and peace than food and drink? Appeal to the God who is the giver of both. Even if you never have before, leave the life of sinful and ineffectual coveting and beg the forgiveness of God. And he will forgive you because your sentence of death was served by Jesus on the cross. This is how you eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so through faith you come to know him at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Eat, drink, and find joy. Returning to verse 18 of Ecclesiastes, just as eating and drinking are unavoidable, so is labor and toil. In the Garden of Eden, it was given to man to work, and though his work has been cursed, labor is still the basic mode of mankind. Solomon has said twice in these verses that such is his lot. This is what people do. They work. Earlier in the book, he made a careful distinction between the ends to which labor is put and labor itself. This is important. Enjoying something that you gain as a result of labor is different than enjoying labor. Solomon said he tested himself with pleasure, building gardens and houses and parks, and he had pleasure in the doing of the work. Yet he concluded that the result of all his work was vanity. Here in 5.18, he's commending the enjoyment of the act of laboring. Again, it's important not to turn this into another vain pursuit. Enjoying work is not about pursuing some future work which one might someday enjoy. It means that one should enjoy what activity, whatever activity one happens to be engaged in right now. Of course, he doesn't rule out making circumstantial changes. A big part of the reason that enjoyment is so highly regarded is that Solomon has concluded that the fruit of labor is vanity. Now, as Solomon puzzles out the problems of life, he's chosen to consider the problem from within the margins of what's done under the sun. So he's not directly addressing matters of eternity. Solomon's amazing conclusion, which he develops throughout the book, is that even between the margins of birth and death, a life of greedy striving still doesn't make sense. Fearing God and laboring with joy that comes from God is still the best path in life. The New Testament fleshes out things that Ecclesiastes only points to. Here there's no deliberate restriction to the temporal earthly perspective. Solomon says all is vanity, and it is if death is the end. But Paul, because he views life from eternity, is able to say, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So when I, when I was a kid near my house, there was this uh, fried chicken place called the Chicken Coop. And on every bucket of chicken, they printed this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The amazing thing is not that labor is vain, but that because of Jesus and because of the resurrection, our labor need not be in vain. The reward is coming even if death lies in between. Jesus said, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
The application to our lives here is clear. As Paul says, we ought to abound in the work of the Lord, work hard. The Lord has prepared good work uh, beforehand for us to do. It's not something that we need to go looking for. Serve the people in front of you. Do good to all people. People, The cashier at the store, the painter in your basement, your boss, your co-workers, your employees. But especially, do good to those who are of the household of faith. Labor in prayer for one another. Give each other your time, your money, and your attention. That is, love one another. All of this should be done heartily and in the name of Jesus, with thankfulness, both of which imply enjoyment. The New Testament clarifies what Solomon spoke about by giving direction to labor, advancing the kingdom, and more grounding to joy, eternal inheritance. Yet the recommended pattern of life is the same, labor with a joy that comes from God. So we've seen that it's right for God's people to enjoy life because food, drink, and labor are already inescapable parts of life and enjoyment of them does not introduce another pursuit toward which we strive. It's rather a relationship to present circumstances. Even the poor can enjoy food and drink. The enjoyment of work is a gift from God that returns life to Eden-like conditions. Look with me now at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. We see here that the Lord's people should enjoy their life because doing so highlights the work of God. This point requires looking at the text from a slightly more elevated level. So Solomon observes two things in the world. One group of people has things but can't enjoy them. Another group of people has things and can enjoy them. Solomon uses these observations to conclude that joy does not come from things, but from God. My point here is that simply being joyful enabled Solomon to point to the work of God in the world. Being joyful and content with what one has in a world that is characterized by vanity and striving is itself a testimony to others that God is at work as the joy bringer. Solomon has moved now in this verse from talking about food, drink, and labor to talking about wealth and possessions. Here too, as with the other things, enjoyment of them is portrayed as desirable. Um, to some early commentators, this sounded too much like hedonism. And so they argued that they were the words of a profane interlocutor. In other words, they thought Solomon was writing a conversation between himself and some ungodly person who thought that God's people should enjoy their stuff. But it is Solomon speaking. It's quite a different thing to commend the enjoyment of what one has versus commending the pursuit of what one does not have. Solomon's already identified that this is vanity earlier in the book. As with eating and drinking, labor and possessions are to be enjoyed in their present condition, whether little or much. It is because of the difference in joy between two people who both had wealth and possessions that he could observe that joy is the gift of God. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul agrees with this nuanced perspective, warning that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, while also acknowledging that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The desire to be rich reflects discontentment with what the Lord has given, and is thus the opposite of bringing God uh, bringing glory to God through enjoyment of blessings, which is being commended here. Labor is mentioned a second time in this verse, and as with the enjoyment of wealth, the enjoyment of labor also highlights the gift of God. Labor must be considered differently than eating and drinking. Since the joy component is less integral to it, having been cursed by God after the disobedience of Adam, the basic condition of man is to enjoy food and drink, but for labor to be unpleasant and wearisome. This is why Solomon says that to find joy in toil is the gift of God. This is not the case with eating and drinking, which largely retain their pleasurability outside of God's special gift. Enjoyment of labor is a return to Edenic conditions, the way man lived before the fall. If post-fall mankind naturally took pleasure in all his toil, he may well hum along through life contentedly, without the angst and futility that drives him to look for God. Yet because men labor under the curse, they're prone to raise their perspective. They may seek joy in competitive striving and greed, or they may seek it in God. This is worth emphasizing. Solomon is asserting that joy is circumstantially independent. Not only can people with wealth either find joy in it or not, as in this verse, but those poor who simply enjoy their meals and work, in verse 18, are better off than those who have wealth without the power to enjoy. Likewise, labor can either be joyful or not. Joy and things are independent quantities. So just how independent is this joy? Could it be possible that it is so independent that it could even exist in circumstances that could constitute suffering. In the first part of verse 19, we saw that it is right for God's people to enjoy what they have because such joy glorifies God by drawing attention to the fact that joy is the gift of God and is not found in things. Such people bring glory to God by living in contrast with those in the world to whom God has not given the power to enjoy. Even in the New Testament, God's people are not barred from enjoying their work for what they have. So in the second part of verse 19, we see that God's people ought to enjoy life because they are God's gifts. As noted above, whereas verse 18 dealt with the universal conditions of mankind, eating, drinking, and work, this section has moved on to other things in life that are less universally distributed, namely wealth and possessions. Is it really true that man is free to enjoy his possessions? It's certainly a danger that the natural man will become a slave of his wealth and thus ruin his enjoyment. Man is not free in the sense of having ability outside of God to enjoy his wealth. Man needs God to enjoy what he has. But is man free to enjoy his wealth in the sense of it being morally right? Solomon's take on the matter seems fairly straightforward. Enjoy your wealth. The key interpretive question here is if and how this teaching squares with the rest of Scripture, 
What about love for God, for others, and sacrificial giving? Does personal enjoyment of wealth lead to a lack of concern for others? If so, it would have been irksome living under the Old Covenant. Since the central directive of the law was to love God and love others, this often involved relinquishing money or foregoing potential gains. A lover of money would have felt constantly injured by such requirements. Yet the law was not only to be obeyed, but also delighted in. The one who could take delight in the law and its commandments was the one who loved God and others. The resolution of the problem lies in the fact that God's people love him and enjoy their possessions by giving them away. In the New Testament, the Macedonians, though no exemplars of wealth, gave in abundance of joy. Paul carefully instructed the Corinthians that they were not to give grudgingly or out of compulsion, but cheerfully. That is, giving is to be done in a way that serves joy. Amazingly, possessions can serve the joy of the believer even when their resignation is not intentional or voluntary. The recipients of the letter to the Hebrews accepted the plundering of their property joyfully because of their anticipation of future inheritance. Furthermore, 1 Timothy 6 gives many practical instructions to the rich, but placing hope in God and not in wealth is most central. The Godward orientation seems to sanctify possessions, just as the prayer of thanksgiving sanctifies food earlier in the book. The rich are not instructed to divest themselves. To return now to the main point of the section, and at the risk of the appearance of circular reasoning, God's gifts should be enjoyed because they're God's gifts. The expectation of enjoyment is presupposed by the fact that something is a gift. A gift is given in order to somehow benefit another. It would be nonsense to assert the opposite. The proper response is not guilt, but thankfulness to God. Enjoyment answers the intention of the gift and honors the one who gives it. So now moving on to verse 20, we see that God's people should enjoy life because it is an anesthetic to suffering. The word suffering is not used explicitly in verse 20. The negative connotations comes from the word remember, which actually suggests brooding thinking or anxiety. In the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, this would be existential angst or brooding over the vanity of life. In the more immediate context, vexation and anger will probably fill out more of the content of uh, the thinking of this word. As we discussed under verse 18, vexing toil is not an anomaly, but the basic condition of man under the curse. Relief is needed. Perhaps drunkenness is forbidden in Scripture, not because it's wrong to seek relief from the problem of life, but because it's sought apart from God, the joy giver. This relief comes through God-given joy in the heart. The phrase, keeps him occupied with joy, can be translated, answereth to the joy of his heart, and mean that he assents to joy or even corresponds to joy. Somehow, 
God is immediately involved in the experience. This is no surprise to New Testament believers who know that joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is something that a person feels in the deepest recesses of his heart because joy penetrates his heart and satisfies it. Of course, this does not mean that no memorable or even horrible events take place. The application of joy as an antidote to the natural anxiety of man is a further extension of the principle that Solomon has already observed, that joy is independent of circumstance. Although it's somewhat obscure here, it's plain and bold in the New Testament. Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. Paul says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. The New Testament is not contradicting Solomon, but extending what he taught him and setting it on new ground. Joy in the new covenant rests in the hope of an inheritance beyond the scope of this world to which Solomon limited his reflections. We as the Lord's people should look to him to be our relief and joy giver in the middle of the difficulty that life is. In the passage from 1 Peter that Murray read for us, we see that though we continue to be grieved by various trials in this life, the faith we have in our waiting inheritance allows us to have joy now. This is joy that is so deep that it actually has become a foretaste of the coming glory. And so, brothers and sisters, with Solomon, I commend to you joy. Eat and drink with the gladness and simplicity of heart that comes from God, giving thanks to him who's given us all things to enjoy. Remember that man does not live by bread alone. Eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, coming to him with faith and repentance. Fellowship with the one who is himself the fountain of joys. Take pleasure in whatever your hand has found to do, and work at it heartily as for the Lord. Entreat him in prayer for his special gift to be able to enjoy the work that he has apportioned to you. Work hard at serving God by loving one another, serving through gifts and encouragements, since, because of our coming resurrection, your labor is not in vain. Enjoy whatever possessions God has given to you, and give hearty thanks to him whenever you do. Enjoy your money most of all by giving it away. He is indeed more blessed, more happy, who gives than he who receives. Whenever you feel the anxiety of life, let your requests be made known to the God who cares for you. Ask that he would strengthen your faith, specifically your faith in the day when Christ will be revealed and when you will receive your inheritance. Pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you with a joy so profound and glorious that, that it could only be the foretaste of another world. Brothers and sisters, enjoy your life.